people like to feel like there's a personality and a connection with the brands that they're shopping. So if you can offer that and take advantage of it, it will really set you apart from your competitors. Welcome to this week's episode of Decoded, where the most intriguing people in the investment space share insights that we can apply to our own investing decisions. Today, Ryan Pallotta is talking with Nicole Wegman. Nicole is the founder and CEO of Ring Concierge, the leading luxury jeweler committed to designing for women by women. In this podcast, Nicole tells us how her own experience of trying to find the perfect engagement ring compelled her to leave the fashion world and get into the jewelry space in 2013. We discuss how Ring Concierge has blurred the lines between retailer and influencer the role of social media in the company's success, and how she has managed to foster an engaged audience. Pun very much intended. Nicole also shares her experience of hiring the best talent as the company grows and the importance of mentorship. Talking of learning from other people's experience and expertise, at Prometheus, you can expand your knowledge by interacting with top investment professionals and accessing the funds they manage more easily than ever before. Get an exclusive invite for Prometheus at prometheusalts.com. And now, enjoy our talk with Nicole Wegman. Amazing. Nicole, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to talk a little bit about what you've built. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your business and how you started out in your early days? Yeah. So I am the founder of Ring Concierge and Ring Concierge is a fine jewelry company that currently offers kind of anything and everything you could ever want made of gold, diamonds, or platinum. So we have on our website, necklaces, earrings, anklets, bracelets, you know, fashion style pieces. And then we also have a very large custom engagement ring portion of our business. We like to say we have anything from $70 to seven figures. And, you know, we quite literally do work at that broad of a price point range. So we are based in New York City. We're headquartered in Manhattan. We have a retail store in the West Village, Mm -hmm. but we work with clients all over the country, all over the world, and really can create anything for anybody. But what was that like for you, you know, early on? Did you always want to get into jewelry? What encouraged you to start a product or focus your whole career around this type of product? Yeah, I started in the fashion industry. Actually, I went to Cornell for fiber science and apparel design. So I knew I wanted to be in fashion. And then my career started first at Macy's and product development. And then I moved to Bloomingdale's in the buying office. And I thought I'd always be in fashion. And after I had gone through the engagement ring purchasing process myself, I think I was like 25 with my now husband, I had never thought about jewelry as a career path for myself. I always thought I wanted to be in fashion. And I walked up and down the Diamond District in New York City. And if you've ever had the pleasure of walking up and down that street, it is just so, it looks like it's from 200 years ago. It's Mm -hmm. all of these men standing on the sidewalk. They're haggling you. Are you buying? Are you selling? And it's just so opaque. It does not feel trustworthy. It does not feel luxury. But if you're in New York, that's like where you think you should go to buy a ring. And then alternatively, you could walk into like a Cartier or a Tiffany and you know you're going to be, you know, have an amazing product, great service, and you can trust them, but the markups are like 300%. Mm -hmm. And so it is price prohibitive 
for the vast majority of the world. And I realized there was this huge void in this very, very old antiquated industry for more modern thinking. Um, you know, God forbid it be a woman that owned the company that's uh, that was unheard of in the space at the time and still a little bit is. But somebody who, who understood how millennials actually wanted to shop. And because I did have this expensive retail background from you know, my education in Macy's and Bloomingdale's, I did have a pretty good sense on consumer behaviors and shopping patterns and all of that. I had you know, bought for both women's wear and men's wear, and I really understood a little bit about that. And I had an e-commerce background and came into this industry with a very different way of thinking about it because it is so family run and dominated. And it's typically, you know, grandfather passes it down to his son who then passes it down to his son and there's just zero innovation. So I think coming into it, partially being naive and not knowing how it worked and just deciding here's what it should look like ended up really working in my favor because I didn't have anything influencing what I, you know, mm. thought what I thought the end company should look like. I think it's interesting you said that it was unheard of for a woman to start a business in this space. Do you mind talking a little bit about why that is and maybe some of the challenges that you faced early on being a woman in this space? Was this was the jewelry space predominantly dominated by men? It was and is, definitely still is um, dominated by men. And I'm not even sure why this is the case. I think it's most of the families that run these businesses and the diamond houses are very, very traditional. Many of them are very, very religious. And for whatever reason, that just means the men own it and the men run it. And um, that never sat well with me for a multitude of reasons, but especially because fine jewelry, the end user is a woman, you know? And so to have all of the product be curated and designed and controlled by men when they're not the ones wearing it really didn't make any sense to me. And I was at the time, like the perfect age of a woman wanting to get engaged and really what, and I was the customer and totally understood what, mm -hmm. what women actually want out of this industry. Um, and so it was a challenge in the beginning. I definitely wasn't taken seriously. It was tough to find partners and to figure out who to work with, who I could source diamonds from that, you know, wouldn't be putting me down and be so dismissive. And so I found a few people who were great, but it was tough. And even to this day, I still get spoken to by some of these very traditional older men as if like, I'm just this silly girl, you know, who likes jewelry as opposed to, you know, CEO and founder of a very successful company. Yeah. That's interesting. The way that you, you position that, how did you, how did you like get past that early on? Like, did you have to kind of work through some, you know, struggles and some blocks early on in your career? And what did you find it difficult? I am good at um, biting my tongue when I when I need to. And <laughs> I think it was definitely important because as much as there is this very backward thinking in the industry, relationships are such an important piece of it. And if you don't have the right reputation and, and build the right relationships, people won't trade diamonds with you. And obviously mm -hmm. I can't sell engagement rings without access to diamonds. Um, so staying in their good graces and always being as nice as possible, even if, you know, in the back of my head, I'm just thinking like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I would like to walk out the door right now. Mm -hmm. I always really tried to do that because I knew I was coming in as an underdog and I knew I needed them. 
and I couldn't do it without them. But at the same time, did spend the first few years trying to find, you know, slightly younger, more open thinking partners mm-hmm. in the diamond world, which do exist. They're just hard to find. And those are the ones that I continue to work with um, to this day because they're great and they understood what ring concierge would bring to the table. And now they very much see the, you know, financial advantages of having been involved with it. And so those are still my partners. When you say ring concierge, could you talk about how, you know, someone could benefit from that service and what you mean by a ring concierge? And do you use technology to help propel that forward and make it easier for people to access diamonds in an easier, more sophisticated way? Yeah. So the reason it's called Ring Concierge is because when I started out, I thought the entire focus would just be bridal and I could help, you know, my clients navigate this very weird industry and help them design rings that were actually beautiful and buy the best diamond for the best price. And that was the concept and to basically act as a concierge in the diamond world. The company has evolved. It's been 10 years. And so now we offer far more than engagement rings. And of course we have a huge e-commerce platform that is just, you know, click and buy. But I think the name is still important because it's a very fragmented industry. 90% of the industry is still mom and pop shops. And people love the idea of having a personal connection and somebody they can trust and somebody they can go to for help when it comes to purchasing fine jewelry. So having the name concierge still does bring a big benefit because I think it alludes to, we will offer you this incredible service, the same service, if not better than you're going to get at your local jeweler. So don't shop with them, shop with Mm us. You know, we're, we're just as good. Actually, we're better. Yeah. I love that. uh, You know, giving that white glove service to a traditionally, so to a process that typically may not be when you put it online, your website talks about blurring the lines between retailer and influencer. How can business use social media to expand their business, but also still give that, you know, personal touch approach that you talk about as being so important when you're buying something as important as a diamond? I used Instagram very, very early on. Um, again, this was 10 years ago. And so apparel was definitely, apparel brands were definitely utilizing social media 10 years ago, but the in the jewelry space, nobody was. And it was the single you know, biggest growth driver for Ring Concierge because we were able to amass a very large following in a short period of time. We currently have half a million followers. Mm -hmm. We're one of the biggest jewelry accounts out there. And it is our biggest top of funnel. It is our least expensive customer acquisition tool because we have a very big following that's very engaged with us. And I realized over the years of, you know, I was using myself as a model because you know, in the beginning, you're not hiring professional models. I would just take pictures on my hands and say, these are the rings I'm making. And people wanted to know more about me. And so over the years, I started to show more and more and more of my personal life and myself on Instagram. And with that conversion increased, engagement increased, the following would grow. And so we started to build in a very serious strategy on taking advantage of me being the founder and it being a personality-led brand, which helps differentiate you from competitors because most of my competitors can't do that on Instagram because they're they're men, you know? And if women mm-hmm. are trying to watch and get inspired and figure out, well, how should I style this? And what outfit would I wear this with? And if I'm going to a wedding, what earrings do I need? 
I can take advantage of that in a way that most other brands can't. And now the following is so engaged with my personal life. They're so connected. They're so incredibly loyal to us because they feel like we're friends. They feel like they know me. They know my friends. They know I have a baby. They just are so involved with the brand. And we also use them for making decisions like a a new product launch. We will preview the different products and we'll take polls on social media. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Do you like this? Would you buy this for $1,000? And we get real-time feedback from them and take advantage of this engaged following in making product decisions, you know, retail expansion, location decisions. We we really try to involve them, not only because it's a great source of data and why not, Mm -hmm. it's free data, but also then they feel like they are very connected and involved in the growth of the brand. And they they love that. They love that involvement. People like to feel like there's a personality and a connection with the brands that they're shopping. So if you can offer that and take advantage of it, it will really set you apart from your competitors. Yeah, I'd love to speak more on that. Do you th- How important do you think it is for a brand's voice to be involved in something like diamonds or jewelry? Is it as important when, you know, the end product isn't going to have any branding on it, but, you know, maybe they feel more trusted that they're getting like an ethically sourced diamond or different things that are important to them. They'll trust that brand more or that they're getting a good price. Have you had experience with people that would prefer to work with you than like maybe a retail giant like Signet Diamonds or Jared's or something like that and how they would prefer to work with like a more, you know, I think hands-on approach like you offer? I think that the key word you mentioned is trust. When it comes to diamonds and this price point, not not knowing who to go to and if you can trust them, especially in an industry that for whatever reason has kind of a negative connotation attached to it that you're always being ripped off, which is not always the case, gaining their trust is key in closing a sale. Um, For most couples, the engagement ring is the most expensive purchase they've ever made outside of a home if they already own one. So it's a really big deal. It's a really big decision. And, you know, their final sale, when you're creating a custom ring, you can't just, it's not like you're walking into a store buying it and you can go return it the next day. Like this is a really big decision. So trusting us and utilizing me on social. So there's a face to the brand. And like, I see exactly who's behind this. I trust her. That has been extremely beneficial when it comes to the engagement rings. Can you tell me a little bit about like the diamond industry, especially in New York? And it it seems there's some controversy around like the ethical sourcing of diamonds. And how does that work? And how do you guys like to source your diamonds to make sure that people, you know, are comfortable with where the diamonds are coming from? I think because of the movie Blood Diamond, everyone just (laughs) assumes, you know, most diamonds are blood diamonds. And yes, this did used to be a much bigger problem. And it, it surely still exists in certain parts of the world. It is technically illegal to buy and sell and work with conflict diamonds in the US. And there is, yeah. And so may they slip through the cracks? I'm sure they do. But for the most part, any large reputable retailer is not working with a conflict diamond. And there's something called the Kimberly process, which was put in place that tracks the origins of a diamond to make sure it's not coming from, from a conflict zone. So we only work with diamonds that are conflict free. It's actually, you know, pretty straightforward to find people that also follow these same set of parameters. Um, it's it's not a common thing. It's just really got blown up from that movie. Yeah, that's super interesting. I love I love how you guys do though care to work with good retail, uh, good sources of diamonds, and work with good 
you know, reputable people to help you, you know, find good product. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, like the early days, did you ever face like a hurdle or a struggle when you're building this company early on from the ground up, you know, new to this industry that seemed to be like, an, you know, a club of older, you know, reputable people? Or were there any struggles that you faced trying to build this? I think it was more just finding the confidence to do it despite it not being a place that was really welcoming to me in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I'm a pretty bold person. It takes a lot to get me upset. I'm very confident. And I think that all worked in my favor because I never let any of that stop me. And so that, you know, would be my piece of advice for anybody who's trying to enter an industry where it doesn't seem like, you know, you're represented is just keep plowing forward and perhaps you being different is actually what's going to set you apart and, you know, drive part of your success. Um, but yeah, I, there was no real major hurdles in that regard that, you know, where I really ever pressed pause or wasn't sure if I should keep moving forward. There's so you you just recently opened up a store, a physical store in New York. How do you adopt an online business and to adapt into an in-person order? And does that you know, jeopardize the e-commerce version of your product? So we, up until um, last year, only sold the fine jewelry, the fashion jewelry on the website. And I was never interested in physical retail. Obviously for for diamonds, it's different. For diamonds, we've always been by appointment. We're in New York City. It's such a big purchase. Most people want to see them. We, we work remotely all the time, but a lot of t- people want to see the diamond they're going to buy because it's expensive. But we never offered the fashion jewelry in person. It was just online. And after the pandemic, there was just this huge trend in a desire for something experiential. And we jumped on taking advantage of a really low priced lease because it's on Bleecker Street in the West Village and Bleecker Street was really hurting. We signed mm-hmm. the lease in 2021. when wow, that's a great location. Mm-hmm, and when most retailers were still very, very nervous about putting any money into a lease or a physical location. And so we have our rent is like half of what it would have been in 2019. Um, and the store has been incredibly successful. It was a test in my mind. It's not that big of a square footage. And we have found that the business, the revenue coming from the store is purely incremental. It's not taking away from e-com sales. I thought, you know, maybe we'll see a down, a drop in New York City based e-com sales because they're just going to go into the store, but it'll be a wash. We are finding that it is truly incremental and we are, you know, need to look for a bigger space. It's far too small. We're looking at where, what other, you know, locations could we be in? And I think it's just people are craving doing things in person because we weren't able to for two years and everyone just sat yeah. home and shopped online. And now you can actually go touch things, talk to somebody. So that has been a big learning and is definitely a strategy for future expansion. Amazing. I love that. Yeah, for sure. I think the experience of, you know, even like the customer service element and holding the diamond in your hand and talking through it with somebody like yourself definitely will help a lot. You know, the markets can often seem oversaturated. What would you say to, you know, young entrepreneurs that are entering a saturated market, how to overcome those labels and those ideas and maybe not be as afraid to start your business? I think if you're entering a very saturated market, the key is going to be how are you different or better and how can you communicate that through marketing? Um, 
Otherwise, you're just going to get lost in the mix. So really seriously take time to think, is my product better than my competitors? Or is my service better? Or can I spin this in a way that sets me apart? And once you figure out those things, then I don't think market saturation is a deal breaker at all. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And how do you guys separate yourselves aside from the social media presence that you have? You have an incredible presence on social media. You mentioned that you can retarget customers pretty much for free through your 500,000 customers. How do you approach marketing and separating yourself so that you can kind of stand out from the saturated market that is the jewelry business? We take the same concept of personality and even use that for more traditional marketing channels. So even with paid ads, you know, it's not me. I'm not standing there talking the way my personality <laughs> come across with um, Instagram. But we definitely try to be a little witty and cheeky. And the wording we use is like more interesting and youthful. And the images are really fun and fresh. Most jewelry brands are very traditional. You know, if you think about like the line, every kiss begins with K's, which is one of the mm-hmm. significant, like that, uh, there's no like worse line in my mind than that. Yeah, that is it's terrible. Stuff, <laughs> it's terrible. And it's such antiquated thinking. And like no mm-hmm. one's shot that way. No one's walking around thinking about that. And yeah. so my team, um, they're all pretty young. We are female run. And so it's just this really fresh, different mindset about how do we market this? How do we make this fun? Um, what makes it interesting? How are we always keeping people on their toes when it comes to the imagery, the copy? You know, are we doing really unexpected giveaways and sweepstakes and like celebrity partnerships and just all of these things that make jewelry really, really fun and exciting because it can be stuffy. If you're not careful, it can be a very stuffy industry that just feels like it's not really obtainable and most people can't afford it and you're not really welcome to shop my brand. And even though we literally have price points that are in the seven figures, people feel feel very, very comfortable to come shop with us. There is this level level of obtainability that we try to message at all times. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's tricky to blend that idea of attainability and relatableness to such a, a product that's so high value. And would you say that you do that through some of your messaging and using different avenues, like even using TikTok or different social media methods? Yeah, I think definitely the way we're marketing it and using these more casual youth platforms definitely helps. But then we also work really hard to create a product offering that can be more all-encompassing and can create a larger target audience. We have products that start for under a hundred on the website and they're still gold and they're still diamonds. It's still fine jewelry, but we work really, really hard. The product development team works really, really hard to develop product at an opening price point that can start that top of funnel for like the Gen Zers, you know, Mm -hmm. so they graduated college or high school and they want to treat themselves, but they only have a hundred dollars. Well, you actually can buy something. And then, you know, that starts to build this relationship with us as your jeweler for life. And then you start to graduate in your price points and then you're at the age where you need to get engaged. So in terms of obtainability and making people feel like that, it's not just the marketing piece. It is also literally, there are very, very great opening price points on our website. How does that make you feel when you've helped, you know, a young woman or, you know, a guy looking for an engagement ring for his fiance I must feel great on your side, you know, helping them make such an important decision and designing it and surprising the person. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's very emotional for couples. It's a really big decision. It's very emotional. So being involved in that is 
definitely exciting. And what we try to do and what the diamond sales team really focuses on is trying to be really practical and just figuring out ways to get them the ring they both want. You know, typically the guy is very focused on quality and the woman is very focused on um, size above all else. And how do you bridge <laughs> And how do you get her the biggest looking ring she can get where, where, you know, her partner still feels comfortable with the quality of it and Uh kind of acting as that middle ground and educating them and making it very, very stress-free. That's important to us. And that's what does lead into them having a really good experience. It's not always just the end product. It's, it's Mm -hmm. the whole path they got. They took yeah, together. How, how do you pick a size? Like, where do you even start? Is there like a rule for size? Like, it used to be like two months salary or something, but if with inflation, I don't know if that's still the case. Um, like, how does a guy pick a size? Yeah, it's usually how much are you willing to spend, and then we'll get you as big mm. as possible within that budget. Is usually the way the math works. Um, once in a, you know, sometimes a couple will come in, and you know, she's just like, it has to be three carats. Figure it out, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So her poor partner is like just screwed, but. Um, uh-huh. Usually they have a conversation like, look, I want to spend anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30,000. What can we get within that range? Can we, how big can we go? And that's usually what dictates the carat weight. And it's just based Mm -hmm. on what they're comfortable spending and disposable income. How do you go about hiring your team? You mentioned that you're kind of female led team. You look for, you know, talented people. What's the hiring process like and where, how do you find and key and, you know, fulfill key roles to propel your business and grow it forward? Hiring has been so difficult lately. Um, We're at 40 people right now. We have 15 additional open positions and the job market's tough. I know everybody says this, but it really is tough to find talent who's excited to work these days, apparently. Um, And a lot of our roles are very specialized. You either have you know, you have to have a very specific jewelry background, or we're looking for somebody that has a really specific social media background. And so we're having a hard time, to be honest. But we, you know, are attractive as a company, because we're really fun. And it's just this very young company with a very fun atmosphere. So that definitely works in our favor. And, you know, you need to pay well, we do, even though we're smaller, we definitely always do a ton of market research. And kind of use the Reed Hastings thought process on hiring where, you know, you you attract the best talent if you're paying top of market. And if they do their market research and find that they can't make any more elsewhere, then they'll stay with you, you know, assuming that you're challenging them and you have a good work environment. So we really do try to budget higher salaries in than probably most companies of our size would be comfortable paying. I love the your Reed Hastings reference. Are there certain entrepreneurs or business leaders maybe in completely opposite fields that you take learnings from in your own business? Like Reed, obviously, founder of um, you know, Netflix, and, you know, he has a totally different business. What would you say you take from you know different entrepreneurs and who are some of your favorites that you know help you lead to your success? Reed Hastings is one of mine. Yeah, that's a great question. I listen to a lot of How I Built This, that podcast. And I I think any successful or even a founder who doesn't succeed, right? I think there's almost there's something you can learn from every single person that has a story to tell about something they've started, a business they've started. So I listen to that all the time because I just, even if it's, you know, the founder of, I think, JetBlue, which Mm -hmm. really is at all to selling fine jewelry, just listening to his thought process on customer service. There was so much I got out of that because at the end of the day, we have customers, right? They might not be flying on an airplane, but they're still Mm -hmm. a customer and taking learnings from him. Um, 
But Jessica Elba in the beginning, when she started Honest Company and when I was a little bit smaller, she um, did a talk at a summit that I was at. And she talked a lot about how her early hires were really, really great when you needed to be scrappy and you were building something and you didn't have much money. But oftentimes those hires aren't the right people when you hit a certain size and you're professionalizing and you now need to get more serious and you're a real company and how it was really hard for her to admit that to herself. But I, you know, it turns out, I think she replaced her entire Mm C-suite a few years into building honest company. And she said it was one of the hardest things she'd ever done, but one of the best decisions she'd ever had ever made. And that really stuck with me because at the time I had a lot of my earlier hires and they were hard workers and they were great. But the second thing started to get bigger and we needed to put in processes and systems and we were expanding the teams and things needed to be more organized. A lot of them didn't work well in that environment. And most, you know, there are a few that are still with me and they're incredible, but a lot of them needed to be replaced. And that was a really hard pill to swallow, but the right decision for the business. And I found that to be a really interesting lesson. Yeah, I think hiring is probably one of the most difficult things that anybody could possibly do. And you know, I think there was a statistic I saw the other day where it's like only ten percent of hires actually can you know pan out and make it. You know, I think that in, it's a lot of dynamics that you're probably working with there. Speaking of all the podcasts that you listen to, you know, how important is continuing education and inspiring yourself by listening to other stories to you? And are there other you know stories that you've heard that kind of help propel similar to the Jessica Alba story you just mentioned? Yeah, I wish I spent more time listening to podcasts, reading books, reading articles. I really wish I did because every time I do, I get something out of it. There's never mm. a time where I don't walk away and I'm not like brainstorming like, oh, okay, that yeah. one little thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's really big ideas and and totally shifts the way I'm thinking about the business or you know, hiring or whatever. And then sometimes it's just little tiny things that make such a difference. But I'm working hard to get myself out of the weeds, but I'm still very, very involved in the day-to-day ring concierge and Mm -hmm. finding the time to just focus on thinking is really tough. And so I can't say I'm doing enough of it and I wish I were doing more and I almost need to carve time out in my schedule that's just devoted to that because it's not, those aren't the types of things you like books you want to read at midnight when you're trying to fall asleep. You know, you you want to be exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I need to find a more time for that. Yeah. And like not obviously like being able to delegate and think about bigger picture stuff is important for what you do and being inspired to go and try new ideas and let other people, but that's when the hiring you know, issue comes into play and having good people around you. Um, you know, what would you like to change in the jewelry industry and where do you see yourself taking this business in the next five, 10 years? Well, like I mentioned before, it's very fragmented right now. So it's a $100 billion industry. 90 billion of it are mom and pops, which is insane. Most industries do not operate that way. You know, think about like the size of market share Apple takes when it comes to like, you know, electronics. Like there to only for the top players to have less than 10% is a pretty great position for me to be in because mm-hmm. it just means we can take market share so easily. So there's Signet and they own, like you mentioned, Jared's, K's, all of those mall stores, basically. They only make up, and they're the biggest player in jewelry, and they only make up 6% of the U.S. market share. So it's nothing. So our strategy is to continue to take market share by basically 
offering the level of product and service you would get at a Tiffany and trying to create a brand name for us that is so well known in every household, like a Tiffany's, you know, mm-hmm. used to be in the 90s and 2000s when anyone would kill to, de- to be proposed to with that blue box. Tiffany's is not really that anymore for millennials or Gen Z. What do you think changed that for Tiffany's? Was that they just didn't, didn't adapt to young people? I, I, yeah, I think they let themselves fall behind in terms of what the products they offered, the way the store feels, their marketing. And now they were recently purchased by LVMH and they're mm-hmm. scrambling to become relevant again. You know, they've hired Beyonce and Jay-Z and Lady Gaga <laughs> ad campaigns, which also feels very disconnected from what you think about Tiffany's. So they're trying to figure it out. But, um, you know, we already have it figured out in terms of what people want and it feeling cool, but also luxury. So now it's just brand recognition and expanding. And it's a mix of continuing to grow digitally and also what does this physical retail um, strategy look like and what's the balance and what, you know, do we need to have, we don't need to have as many doors as a case has. Mm -hmm. We know we don't need to be in every little city in the US, but how many cities do we need to be in? And thinking about that and how do we target both men and women? Because at the end of the day, you know, the men are perhaps the people purchasing the engagement ring, but the women are the ones that start the conversation. And on our website, 70% of our fine jewelry purchases are made by women. So they are very much important in our marketing strategy and just trying to always stay at the forefront in social media and keeping people engaged and yeah, continuing to grow that way. So would you see yourself having more retail locations, more along the lines of Tiffany's and then continuing to grow the brand name in the next you know, five, 10 years? Yeah. And then really our biggest competition is the local jeweler. It's not Tiffany, mm-hmm. right? So Tiffany makes up 2% of the market share in the US, whereas the local jewelers, you know, all mom and pops, they're making up 90%. So what are they offering and why are people opting to shop with them when we know they don't necessarily have better product? We know they don't necessarily have better prices. It's purely just convenience and comfort and accessibility. So how can we take what they're offering and implemented at Ring Concierge because we have a nicer, better, cooler brand and product than they do. So we should be able to capture their audience. Yeah, I think a little bit of that is just that personal touch that you'd mentioned that makes it feel like I'm getting a discounted deal because I'm not buying it from a huge retail or big box store. I have that like that guy on the corner of the street who's going to sell me something with a, at a slight discount. Even my one of my best friends who just bought an engagement ring for his girlfriend got it from a guy he knows who sells diamonds and felt better doing it that way. Um, you know, he's obviously sells to celebrities and all things like that, but he's just a dude with an office and selling it to people. Everyone always has a guy, you know, and this guy, (laughs) yeah, I guarantee when you when you comp shop their prices, they're not actually the same thing. It's just this feeling you get. So how do we shift the mindset that you should be shopping with us? Because it's a better altogether experienced product and our prices will match your guy. So I think being really, really transparent with pricing is what's going to get us there because people will realize, oh, like their prices, they're not a Tiffany markup. They're not a Harry Winston markup. Why would I go to that guy on the corner when I can get a ring? But I think you already do do that. Like you have, you are that guy, you are that girl, you are, (laughs) you putting the face to the brand helps people feel like that personal touch connection. You know, I don't know if you pop into the store ever, but you know, even you know seeing you at the store would help people feel comfortable you know buying that product so i think you know that's that is what you guys are doing so well which is really interesting 
we'll have to use you when I buy my ring. Yeah, but, please do. <laughs> <laughs> like like Mike did. Um, yeah, you you mentioned that you love listening to the How I Built This podcast. When you were starting out and you were just building this, did you have to like take on loans to do this as a huge capital expenditure to build doing a jewelry business? Um, how did you you know take on that daunting task? At, know, so early on new to that business? Yeah, I think this surprises most people. We've never, I've never taken out, um, I've never taken outside capital. And the key to that, and I got just lucky in the way that this business works is when I first started for the first many years and I just sold engagement rings and it was just me, I would show clients diamonds that I had on memo. So they were on consignment from my different suppliers. And I would only purchase the diamond once the the sale was committed to by my client. So in terms of cash flow, it was really mm -hmm. easy because I would have the client's payment and then purchase the diamond. So I didn't actually have to hold an inventory, which of course in jewelry is a humongous expense. Um, and I grew slowly. So this is not you know, a story about rapid growth in the beginning. Now we're at mm -hmm. rapid growth and we're talking about very large numbers and that's different. But in the beginning, I grew very slowly through word of mouth using just free Instagram you know, Instagram for free marketing and started to build up cash that way. And it was profitable from day one. Now we're oh, at wow. a stage. Yeah. So I, that was great. But now we're at a stage where we're still profitable. We've always been profitable. We're self-funded. We've never taken outside capital, but we own inventory, of course, for the website. And it's a becoming an increasingly large number because we've been doubling year over year for the past many years. And so the inventory don't, numbers need to double and mm -hmm. we need to buy inventory for Q4, which is by far our biggest season. Black Friday makes up a third of our, our year when it comes to the website. And we have to buy that inventory now in order to have it in time. So it's the first time we've been trying to figure out um, cash flow issues because we need a lot of money right now and we're going to get paid back for that in November yeah. through Black Friday. And so we're working um, on lines of credit with a bunch of different banks right now and figuring out who can give us the biggest line of credit because I really don't want to take outside funding until we need to. And there might be a point and I'm sure there will be a point in which we want to take, you know, maybe, maybe it really does come down to the physical retail expansion plan when we have no choice but to take outside funding. But, you know, the bigger we grow and the larger our revenue number is, the stronger position we're in when it does take, come time to take funding for that equity percentage we're giving them to be as small as humanly possible. And so that's always mm -hmm. been my focus because I'm a control freak and I don't want to give up control. <laughs> really, I would never give up control, but I don't, I don't want to give up anything until mm -hmm. I have to and the trade-off is going to be really worth it. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what was that learning curve like, though? You didn't. Did you have a background in business, or did you have mentors around you that helped you learn some of these things? Was it all self-taught? There's a huge learning curve to even managing, you know, this cash flow and inventory flow and supply chain, and especially as you transition to the e-commerce business. How did you learn all this? Uh, I think it was a combination. So obviously, I knew e-com and buying in some capacity because of my previous career. But no, I didn't have a business background. I am the first to tell you I do not have a finance background. It's not my <laughs> strong suit at all. And I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, but it, I was so small then that those mistakes didn't really matter. They were also tiny mistakes, you know, financially. And my biggest 
um, advice for most people is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and experts in the areas that you are not. I think it is such a mistake for founders to think that they are the smartest person in the room and it's their business. So they know how to do everything best. I really disagree with that. You know, I have mm. an incredible um, director of finance at Ring Concierge. I am not strong at ops and we have the most incredible ops team. And I bring in a lot of consultants in areas that I'm not strong in ops consultants, marketing consultants, um, you know, focusing on finding really, 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 really good accounting firm. And, you know, you have to trust, but verify type of a thing. You want to trust all these people, but you have to stay on top of it. You can't just hand this off and say, great, you run this for me now. But outsourcing where you're not strong is, I think, a, a huge key to success when you're starting your own business. You're not good at everything and you shouldn't be good at everything. So who's mm -hmm. better at you in these different areas and bring them on board? What do you think that we can do to encourage more female entrepreneurship in worlds where, you know, they may be a little afraid to enter that because of barriers to entry or just encouraging them to take on this role more as the, as you know, we start to increase the amount of women that we want to see taking on foundership roles. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think it comes from a few issues, right? I think women tend to be more self-conscious than men when it comes to business. And there's no reason for that, of course. And so overcoming these fears and just going for it, I think is step one. I think there is definitely an issue um, once you reach a, reach a certain age and trying to understand how you would balance if you want to have children, being a mom and running a business, because that balance is definitely tough. I have a one-year-old and put off having a baby for a very long time because I was so focused on growing ring concierge. And I think letting people know it's doable and you're not going to be perfect at everything. Like you're not going to be a super mom, but that's okay because your kid's going to be fine and you mm -hmm. can figure out how to balance it and it's not all going to fall apart. And I think it's just being really open and open and honest about here's what life is going to look like, but that's okay because you don't have to be, you know, with your kid 24 seven and you don't have to be with your business 24 seven, but you can find this balance. And what is that? And so I think it's just empowerment and and just taking that first step because it's all just perception. There's no real reason there shouldn't be more female founders. And there's so few, so few. Yeah, we have to do more to change that and encourage more people. But I think, you know, women like yourself learning from them and, you know, it'll encourage more to, you know, realize that, like you said, there's a little bit of, they're a little bit self-conscious, but, you know, seeing mentors like yourself can help you know, break some of those barriers. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us and you're doing such an incredible job. I'm going to buy my ring from you, buy so many diamonds from you. So thanks for all the help and I uh, love the conversation. Thank you for having me.